Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is February 7th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Shock Me, Double Sequential or Vector Change for Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrests with Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation. And I'm very excited to have this guest skeptic on today's episode. It's Dr. Sean Moore. He's an emergency physician working in Kenora, Ontario, where he is the chief of staff at the Lake of Woods District Hospital, Northern Medical Director for Orange Air Medical Transport Program, and Associate Medical Director with Critical Ontario. His research includes simulation-based assessment, transportation medicine, and critical care analgesia. And he's also an assistant professor at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine University. Yes, it's a university now. And he's passionate about health equity for rural and indigenous populations. And he's been an ACLS instructor for close to 30 years. And notably, his first publication focused on OCAs. So welcome to the SGEM, Sean. So happy to be here, Ken. I'm a, a big fan of your work and the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine as a whole. I've, uh, I think it's amazing that you show clinicians how to critically appraise the literature and how to use these skills to apply evidence-based approaches to specific problems for real progress in emergency medicine. This is, this is a big deal. <laughs> well, it's great to have such a kindred spirit nerd on the show. Uh, <laughs> we have other things in common because we both work rurally. We do. And uh, and I've been working rurally and my my family and my family's uh, forefathers and those before them have worked rurally for uh, for generations. Um, I also have a similarity with you in my penchant for the absurd when it comes to my wardrobe. So I've uh, always felt that we were been kindred spirits across a lot of different areas. <laughs> well, did you see my new avatar? Uh, we did the uh, amazing conference called EM cases summit put on by anton hellman what a great conference that was that was last week and there was an attendee out from bc who for their wellness does cartoons and i said oh could you do a cartoon for me and so she goes oh send me a picture so i sent her a picture and of course i had my batman lunchbox with me and my purple <laughs> sequence lab coat in the picture and so she made this great cartoon so now it's my avatar for twitter and things so what a great conference that was yeah i really like that and uh, anton puts on a great show and and uh, the guests on there it's always such a pleasure to be uh, to be associated with that conference also high quality high quality okay so uh, let's get on to a case for today's episode Sure. So um, I'll put the, the I'll paint the, the clinical setting. So the, in this one, it's, it's kind of an odd one, but it's a real case. And I have permission from the individual um, to present this. Um, so a 60 year old health professional suffers a cardiac arrest while working at a clinic outside of your hospital. Uh, there is an anesthetist working alongside him for the procedure. And that anesthetist notes when he, he drops down to the floor to take a look at his colleague that the, the that in fact, he's pulseless. He initiates CPR and yells for a colleague to get uh, to call 911. He then intubates the patient on the floor. The patient is found to be in ventricular fibrillation when they grab the AED. So they immediately try a couple of AED shocks at the clinic. And subsequently, when the EMS arrives, which is really close by, um, he has three more shocks en route to the hospital, which is only about a five minute uh, uh, trip away. So, but he arrives at the hospital 18 minutes into cardiac arrest and the monitor shows 
again, persistent ventricular fibrillation. All right, so background information. Out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, or OCAs, are something that we've covered extensively on the SGEM over the years. This has included things like therapeutic, and I'm putting therapeutic in air quotes here, hypothermia, and that was on SGEM 54, 82, 183, 275, and just last week, the most recent episode with Justin Morgenstern from First 10 EM on SGEM number 391, but that was looking at in-hospital cardiac arrest. We've also looked at superglottic devices, crowdsourcing your CPR, epinephrine, that was the paramedic 2 trial, and then looking at IO versus IV access. So one of the issues that you haven't covered on the SGM is pad placement and double sequential external defibrillation, both of which are really interesting concepts. So I'm excited to be able to cover this, this territory here. Well, today's the day. So what's the clinical question? Does refractory ventricular fibrillation respond better to standard defibrillation, vector change defibrillation, or double sequential external defibrillation? And the reference for this? So this comes from uh, Cheska's uh, et al. His um, article, Defibrillation Strategies for Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation in New England Journal of Medicine, uh, November of 2022. So congratulations to these authors. There are some super, super smart people on this publication, like Shelley McLeod, Christiane Valcourt. Um, and you can tell it's a uh, Canadian study because they use the double-double sequential external defibrillator. <laughs> Only the Canadians will get the double-double joke. But do you know any of these other uh, superstars? Yeah, as you mentioned, there's a lot of great Canadian brain power on this study. I uh, I know you know Sheldon. I know Rick Verbeek, Shelley McLeod, Laurie Morrison, Michael Feldman, uh, Paul Dorian, and uh, Christian Viancourt, of course. Who is uh, this? I mean, the list is a it's a, it's a venerable a veritable who's who of who is you know in the the cardiac arrest super researcher uh, community. And Christian uh, Viancourt has been a close colleague since our days as residents at McGill, and he's been a great friend and supporter through my whole career. So I've, uh, I've, I've known about this work for some time and very, very excited to, uh, to read this when it was published most recently. Well, for every SGEM episode, I have to come up with a feature image for the blog, and now I'm thinking double-double. You know, put a picture of the old double-double on there just to get the uh, message across. All right, let's run through the PCOT. What was the population? Uh, so the population involved was Ontario patients who were at least 18 years of age and had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and refractory ventricular fibrillation. All right, and what were the two different interventions that they tried? So they did vector change defibrillation. So pads normally were placed, um, you know, in, in the past, pads were placed in the anterior anterior positions. Uh, so at the apex and uh, over the, st the sternum. And then the other intervention and changing them was to anterior posterior pad placement after the, the failure of the third shock with the standard. And the other alternative in this was double sequential external defibrillation where pads are placed in both the anterior anterior placement as well as the anterior posterior pad placement following the third shock with standard defibrillation. So this is different than some of the randomized control trials we've covered in the past where they have two different treatment groups and then a comparison group. So there are two different treatment groups is they just changed the vector of our standard pad placement and went anterior posterior and everybody had to have three shocks in the standard position. 
And so you had this vector change or you put on two pads, two separate defibrillators were used. That was the double sequential. And again, only after a third shock was attempted. So what did they compare it to? So the comparison was standard defibrillation with pads placed in the anterior, anterior, or normal pad configuration. Okay, let's run through the outcomes. What was their primary outcome? The primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge. Oh, that seems very objective. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room, alive or dead, right? So very objective. How about their secondary outcomes? Okay, the secondary outcomes were also very strong. Termination of ventricular fibrillation, return of spontaneous circulation, or ROSC, good neurologic outcome, again, a modified Rankine scale of less than three. What type of study was this? So this was an unblinded cluster randomized trial with crossover amongst six paramedic services in rural and urban Canada. So the author's conclusions were, quote, among patients with refractory ventricular fibrillation, survival to hospital discharge occurred more frequently among those who received double sequential external defibrillation or vector change defibrillation than among those who received standard defibrillation. All right, Sean, let's run through the quality checklist for randomized control trials. Hey, are we talking about patients in the emergency department? So no, uh, th these, however, are pre-hospital patients. And this setting is, I think, equally important and represents the intended population for both pre-hospital and emergency department uh, defibrillation. And how'd they do on the randomization? So this was randomized. The patients in the six regions were randomized into three-arm clusters with a crossover conducted for each paramedic service. And the randomization was adequate. And did they hide or did they conceal that randomization to the participants? No. So the process involved an entire paramedic service using one of the three strategies for defibrillation at the time for a six-month period and then crossing over to the control strategy. The patients, were they analyzed into the groups to which they were randomized? So I'm talking about intention to treat analyses here. Yes. All patients were analyzed according to the groups to which they were randomized. And the patients, were they recruited consecutively to avoid selection bias? Yes, there, were no there was no selection bias. The patients were all treated in one region with one of the three strategies and then crossed over after six months. And the patients in the groups, were they similar with respect to prognostic factors? Yes, the patients were similar and the relative risk was adjusted further for age, sex, and whether bystander CPR was received. And was everybody involved in the study, so the patients, the clinicians, the outcome assessors, were they unaware of group allocation? So this is getting at blinding. No. So each of the paramedic groups was obviously aware of the protocol being followed for the region at each point in the study. It's unclear if this would have affected any outcomes. And of course, the participants were blinded, you know, at the time of service because, you know, they were unconscious. True enough. All right. All groups, were they treated equally except for the intervention? Yes, the groups were otherwise treated equally except for this intervention. How was their follow-up? Follow-up was complete. Data was available and complete for more than 80% with survival to hospital discharge, not available for one patient in the standard group and one patient in the vector uh, change group. And the modified Rankine scale data were missing for two patients in the standard group and 
the vector change group and one in the double sequential external defibrillation group. So they really did a good job for uh, follow-up because we're usually looking for at least 80% and they overachieved on that metric. How about all patient important outcomes? Were they considered? Yes, I, I believe that death, discharge home from hospital, and modified rank and scale less than three are the most important outcomes that could have been followed, and they were all followed. And do you think the treatment effect was large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Yes, the treatment effect was large enough to, and precise enough to be clinically significant. All right, and the final question, how about financial conflicts of interest? Are these people coming from big shock industry? <laughs> so disclosure was complete, and this was a, another strength of this article. There were no significant conflicts of interest for any of the authors that would have been perceived as potential influences in the submitted work. All right, let's run through the results. They enrolled just over 400 patients into the study. The mean age was 64 years. Over 84% were male. Two-thirds were witnessed arrests. 58% had bystander CPR performed. And the median response time was eight minutes. What was the key result? So greater survival was achieved in the vector change and the double sequential defibrillation group compared with standard treatment. So let's give them the effect size for that primary outcome when they compared standard, you know, to this new vector change. What did they find? So vector change was 21.7% successful versus 13.3% in those that had standard continued defibrillation in the, in the standard manner. Yeah, and that was statistically significant. And to remind everybody, that primary outcome was were they alive? So we're talking about mortality data here. How about the double sequential external defibrillators? How did it do? Was it even better, worse, or the same as this improvement we saw with the vector change group? So it's even more impressive. The double sequential external defibrillation group was 30.4% successful versus the standard 13.3% success rate. Uh, so this was a relative risk of 2.21 and with confidence in intervals, which again range from 1.33 to 3.67. Impressive results. So everything was on the side of favoring the double-double. All right, how about the secondary outcomes? So double sequential external defibrillation, but not vector change defibrillation, was associated with a higher percentage of having a good neurologic outcome than the standard defibrillation. I'll put a table in the show notes with all the numbers for that and their 95% confidence intervals around those point estimates if people are interested in uh, drilling down into those secondary outcomes a little bit more. But let's get to the talk nerdy section, my favorite section. You ready to talk nerdy with me, Sean? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Number one, let's just talk about the population. These were pre-hospital patients and not ED patients. However, we often have patients code on us in the department or we're called to a code blue somewhere in the hospital. And these codes include refractory ventricular fibrillation arrests. And so they likely apply to the hospital setting as well. Yeah, and I, I would add that we oftentimes receive patients who have had numerous attempts at defibrillation that have been unsuccessful. And that's an additional population that we have to consider. Absolutely. So the continuation of the out-of-hospital uh, arrest. And our second nerdy point is about blinding. 
So this was a double-blinded study. The patients were unconscious, unaware of treatment allocations, and the outcome assessors were unaware of the group allocations. However, the treating paramedics were aware of the assigned defibrillation strategy, obviously, and were unsure as if this would have biased the results in any substantial way. So it was a double-blinded study for a double-double sequential. Nice. All right. I'm, that joke is just going to go through this whole show. All right. Third nerdy point was about the cluster randomized control trial methods. There is a difference between individual randomized control trials and clustered randomized control trials. Cluster RCTs mean you cluster a group of individuals as a unit, making the number of independent units allocated smaller than the actual number of observations. There's some advantages to performing cluster RCTs. They include preventing contamination between the intervention and the control participants through sharing of information. So if you had all different types of uh, procedures at each paramedic unit or each ambulance, they could crosstalk with each other. Uh, Second thing is uh, it can help with recruitment of participants into the trial because that's what you guys are doing at that site. Everybody's in. And then also uh, it's pretty good for public health interventions rather than individual interventions. There's also some disadvantages to cluster RCTs. They can be more difficult to design, analyze appropriately, and they they raise unique ethical challenges. They're also more susceptible to certain biases and from statistical standpoint, less efficient than an individual RCT with the same number of observations. So just with any study design, right? There's potential benefits and potential downsides to that. So uh, you just have to appreciate them. How about number four? Let's talk about stopping early. And we've discussed this issue around stopping trials early on the SGEM. Depending on why a trial is stopped, it can introduce potential bias into the results and lower our confidence in the findings. Some of these problems can be mitigated against by deciding a priori what conditions would cause a trial to be halted in advance, right? And we can put some references at the end of the blog for people who want to read into this further. Sure. And this trial wasn't stopped for benefit, but rather because of COVID. The Data and Safety Monitoring Board determined that the operational challenges of the pandemic, so donning full PPE, performing aerosol generating medical procedures, the longer response times due to staffing shortages that occurred, um, necessitated stopping of the trial. Their power calculation originally called for 930 patients, but they stopped at 405, which is 44% of their intended uh, group. A lot of researchers faced this difficulty during COVID, so this was not a unique situation. They didn't peer into the data and go, look, we've got success, let's stop now, and sort of like stopping the hockey game and, and you know, the second period because you're up by one goal. That's not great, but they had to stop because of COVID. All right, that's enough nerdiness. Now let's comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions, Sean. So we agree with the author's conclusions on this one. It's hard not to agree with them. They're very agreeable and they did a good study. So how about the SGEM bottom line? So this represents a potential practice-changing article, and we should consider incorporating the strategy into the treatment of refractory ventricular fibrillation patients. So I know that this was a real case, but how would you resolve that case now? So I think the first thing that I would do is upon arrival of someone who had received a anterior-anterior pad placement defibrillation attempts times five at the 
point where I received them, I would simply slap on an anterior, posterior set of pads and do double sequential external defibrillation in my emergency with the next shock that I was given. This patient was loaded up at that point and transported to the local hospital emergency department, and that's what I would do. And tell us, was it a good outcome? It was the best outcome. Okay, good. So good. This, this patient did, did exceptionally well. A couple of days after having had, again, it, by the end, it was 28 minutes of, um, of, of CPR. He had had a total of eight defibrillation attempts numerous medications, etc. He went for um, angiography or angioplasty, and he was returned back home three days after being admitted in, uh, in one of our tertiary care centers. And his wife came to tell me that he thought she, she thought that he was more neurologically intact than before he went in that day. <laughs> so oh. this was as good a, this was good a good outcome as it could be possible. And the uh, and the clinician returned to clinical services um, has now subsequently retired. But this was the the kind of case that we want to we want to hope for. Oh, that's great to hear. So um, how are you going to take this uh, new paper and uh, apply it clinically? I would start by implementing the protocol for anterior posterior pad placement on patients with uh, out of hospital cardiac arrests and those that are at risk uh, during transport. If a new protocol is successfully implemented, you could look at having, you know, two defibrillators on each ambulance, but I don't think that's really practical. In addition, I think if we were talking about those coming into a hospital where they pre-hospital system has applied anterior anterior pads, adding the second set and doing double sequential external defibrillation when they arrive in the emergency department would be the protocol that I would employ. It gets a little trickier though in our rural settings. So some places you might not have an ambulance arrive for you know, 120 minutes. And in those cases, uh, we, we employ in Ontario, Orange Transport, and we would d double dispatch a helicopter and a land ambulance as we do right now, and perhaps um, allow for the second defibrillation to occur again, but when they get to as close as possible or when they get to the hospital or when a second truck or a second helicopter or someone else arrives. There's a lot of ways and permutations to, to put this into play, but I think that it is extrapolatable to these other situations and that we have to start thinking, well, how can we do this uh, practically speaking? And each of your settings is gonna be different. What about you? What do you think, Ken? Is there anything else here that you, you think should be covered differently? Well, I think I'd reach out to my um, EMS guru expert, Dr. Howie Mel, and ask him because he's run these services in large urban environments and it might be different there than my rural experience. Whereas, you know, it might be a long distance to dispatch another ambulance. So why doesn't the ambulance just come in? But in the city, you know, I'm reading the newspapers like you are, you see that, you know, that ambulance in the city might have a hard time dispatched another ambulance because all the ambulances are on offload delay at the hospital. You're going to be transporting the patient too. So I think it's complicated. I think it's complicated and we'll have to, as um, a group of individuals, try to come up with protocols that work in our own individual environment and test them out and see how we do. So uh, what would you tell the patient? Well, the patient's unconscious, so we won't be speaking to them during the resuscitation, but we can mention to the family observing an event that we're gonna try some additional strategies to get the patient out of the ventricular fibrillation arrest.
It's time to announce the Keener Contest winner, and last week's winners were Dr. Cindy Bitter and Dr. Stephen Steltz. They knew that about 25% of in-hospital cardiac arrest patients survive. What's the Keener Contest question this week, Sean? So, the Keener Contest. The question for this week... We've spoken a fair bit about double-doubles throughout the show, and most Canadians will probably know that you know a double-double refers to two cream, two sugar coffee at Tim's, but some of our other U.S. folks uh, would think like me that double-doubles have to do with um, scoring in NBA. So my question is, who holds the NBA league record for most career double-doubles? Actually, looking into this, it wasn't Tim Hortons who first coined the term double-double. It was the In-N-Out Burger chain back in the early 1960s. But that's not the Keener Contest question. It's an NBA record for who had the most double-doubles. And if you know the answer, then send an email to thesgem at gmail.com. The first correct answer will receive a cool, skeptical prize. Sean, great having you on the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Ken. This is, it's always a pleasure to collaborate with you in any way possible. Next time we get together, we got to have a double-double. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> before, that, can you, uh, before we get together for that double-double, can you read the tagline? Absolutely. So remember to be skeptical of anything that you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to you next time.